0: morning turn to matthew twenty four we are looking at this famous discourse of Jesus, the Olivet discourse we'll be looking at verses uh, chapters twenty four and twenty five this month and early part of next month and uh, the reason is that when Jesus uh, gave his teaching, matthew compiles it for us in five important messages. And this last one has to do with the end of time. And think about it. You know, five messages Matthew's going to give us, five chapters to the handbook on Christian discipleship, and one of them has to do with the end times. So that's really interesting. Uh, And probably not for the reasons we might think it is, because the end times are so interesting. And because the trying to figure everything out is so interesting. But rather because Jesus, of course, realizes and Matthew realized as one of his disciples that our having this in our minds and in our hearts, that it being a very part of our DNA and the way that we think is essential to our discipleship. Uh, When Paul is talking about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I've heard some Christian men say before, You know, I don't want to be sort of taken away with all this talk about revelation and what's going to happen at the end and about heaven and all that. I want to be a man who's practical. Who man who's useful right here in this life. I want to be obedient now, this man said. He is of all people most to be pitied. Because what Jesus teaches us is that eternal life begins right now. But it ends in something that's even more glorious. We're going somewhere. This is not the the, the best there is to be. The best is yet to be. And if that's not in our minds while we're going through this life, we're not... We couldn't possibly conduct ourselves properly. There are way too many reasons for us to get ourselves involved here and to act as though everything's going to have to be dealt with here. And we are a people who can postpone because we believe, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of his people. We believe this. It's real to us, and therefore we live a certain way. If you look at almost any compendium of the essentials of the Christian faith in the history of Christian doctrine, you will always find the second coming among the essentials, the, the eternal state of the Christian among the essentials of the Christian faith. This is not icing on the cake. It's the cake. Uh, at least it's it's part of the cake. And so we need to devote ourselves to these things and be discipled by them today so that whatever mindset we have about where our joy is going to come from or when we're going to get it or how we endure through the sufferings of this life, if we have any of those questions in our minds, we begin to get them resolved by the Word of God today. This is the reason Jesus was teaching them. This is the reason that on Passion Week, before his crucifixion, he not only talked to them about the resurrection, he talked to them about the eternal state, the things that are to come. So it's vital for us as we look at this this chapter to dig into these things and do the best that we can to understand at least the essentials so that our whole lives are shaped by it. And that's the point that we are not meant to be a people who are organizing our lives and our priorities based on what we can see here in our three score and ten. We just miss the whole game if we do that. We organize our lives here in scope of the long view. Wise people always make decisions in the short run in view of the long run. That's what wise people always do. Well, a Christian is the wisest because he sees the longest run and it's not pie in the sky. It's only pie in the sky if you don't believe it. This is reality. So we live these years in view of the long run. That's the reason it's so important for us to devote ourselves to these chapters. And you notice we're spending probably more time per verse on these two chapters than we are in almost any other. They're important. And let's pick up then at verse 29. And you'll, you'll remember that in this all that Discourse, Jesus begins by telling them some of the signs of the present age that we're in through verse 14. When he gets to verse 15 through verse 28, he's telling them about something that's going to happen in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., the destruction of the temple. That was a very important sign of God's judgment. It was a very important moment in redemptive history. When God closes a chapter basically on Judaism, it's basically over at that point. And now all of Judaism is simply to be evangelized because the promises given to Abraham and the Jewish people apply to the church. And in the Old Testament, you have the word church used over a hundred times. So the old the Israel is the church, but now the church is. The church, including the Gentiles, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you, if you belong to Israel, the people of God, you come in the church. So it's important for us to contemplate the meaning of 70 AD so that we understand the church that we have today is the people of God that, that he called into existence uh, from the beginning. And now when we come to verse 29 through verse 31, it gets a little tricky And I'll tell you why, Uh, because look at the word, the first word in verse 29, the word immediately, immediately after the tribulation of those days. It looks clearly, doesn't it, that Jesus is saying right after the days of the destruction of the temple, right after those days, the Son of Man is going to be coming. And so some say, well, this must be highly symbolic language, still speaking about 70 A.D., but on the other hand, you're talking about the coming of the son of man, which seems clearly to speak about Jesus Christ, who was the son of man in his personal, visible, glorious coming. So people get confused about whether he's talking about 70 AD in these three verses, or he's talking about the end of time. Either one of those has what we would call interpretive problems. Uh, some, like myself, are always looking how you can embrace both things and say, well, it's just a little bit of both, or maybe it's intentionally confusing, you know what I mean? So the, what you can see is that the event of 70 A.D. is closely connected to the whole theology of the coming of the Son of Man. That for sure you can see. And then when we get into verses 32 and following, as we will see later on, is there, there we're clearly talking about the end of time in this world as we know it. So there are debates about what Jesus is specifically talking about in 29 through 31. I want to uh, confess right from the beginning that I think those who say it is having to do primarily with 70 AD can make a strong point, as we'll see in a few moments. But I do think that Jesus is primarily focusing upon his coming at the end of the age. It seems to me the verses uh, would lean us in that direction because of some of the explicit things that are said about his coming. But the word parousia is not used here. Uh, Another Greek word is used, which makes some people suggest uh, suggest that maybe it's a a figurative sort of coming in judgment. And that is what happened at 70 AD. But i lean toward the other where we're looking at really the second coming of the Son of Man in in the the day to come. Well, let's look at verses 29 through 31, and as difficult as they may be to interpret from that perspective, they are chock full of meaning for us, which applies really in some ways either way that you would interpret the uh, original meaning. Let's take a look at it, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, And the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other." Well, let's notice, uh, let's just take these three verses really as our major outline. And I want to suggest in this first verse that what we see is that his coming will bring this world to an end. And I say that because I believe he is primarily talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ that we know to be in our future. Uh, And I want us to, to notice that what is coming to an end, first of all, is the natural realm. The natural realm. Now, why do I say that this language can be highly symbolic? I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 13. That would be on page uh, 1265. Page 1265. And here you see on page 1264, right at the beginning of chapter 13... The paragraph heading says, The Judgment of Babylon. The Judgment of Babylon. Now remember, Isaiah is writing before the Babylonian exile. So this is really strange. He's predicting God's judgment on Babylon before Babylon takes the southern kingdom into exile in 586 B.C., about 100 years after Isaiah or more. Uh, And notice... The strong language here. Uh, Verse 4 in chapter 13. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of His indignation to destroy the whole land. What you have here is God is mighty warrior. And God as the warrior is taking on our enemy. It's a wonderful passage. Well, for the day of the Lord is near. And the day of the Lord would just simply be a day of vindication when God himself shows up. And we go into battle and win it on that big day. And it was was basically in Near Eastern religions, regardless of what your religion was. If you won a battle, that was the day that, that your God showed up and won the battle. And... Jehovah is using the same kind of language that many nations would have used. And he said, you know, when he shows up, uh, God's people Israel wins the battle. So that's the day of the Lord when he shows up. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes. Cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Now look at this, verse 10. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity, and so on. You see the language there sun will be darkened, the moon will be darkened, the stars will fall out of the sky. So there's a sense in which uh, some would say uh, Jesus is simply using figurative language here. And that's the reason they could say it could apply to 70 A.D. That was the great day of the Lord, his judgment not on Babylon, but his final judgment on Israel as a nation. However, turn with me now to 2 Peter. We're going from one end of your Bible to the other. Uh, look at, this is page 2423 or 2422. 2 Peter chapter 3. And here, Peter is giving a description of the great day of the Lord. And once again, just like from the Old Testament, the great day of the Lord is when the Lord shows up, fights the battle, the final battle, and we win it. So it's all going to come to an end when he shows up visibly, physically among us in the incarnate Lord Jesus. And I want you to notice what's going to happen to the natural realm. Look at verse 7 of Second Peter 3. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up <clears throat> for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So, you see, it looks as though what Peter is saying is that on that last day, the old world order is going to be dissolved. So, uh, here's the analogy. Uh, we know that with our own bodies, they're wasting away. And those some of you have been in amen for a number of years. Now, I've noticed you don't look the same today that you did when you started out with amen. Uh, And you've noticed the same thing about me. I saw a picture of myself when I got here 18 years ago. Y'all just worn me out. Uh, (laughs) No, no, actually, I've just gotten old. You know, 18 years, I've just changed. And so we're just kind of winding down physically. Now, Paul says, don't let that discourage you. Uh, Our inner nature is being renewed day by day. In other words, inwardly, we're getting younger and younger all the time. We're being renewed all the time so outer nature wasting away going one direction inner nature going in another direction and that's what it means to be a christian our bodies and their decrepit condition does not define us as christian men uh, there's something on the inside of us that is being renewed all the time because it's eternal and so we never lose hope we never would allow our bodies to discourage us but in the same way That your body dissolves, goes into the ground, and you can preserve it all you want to. You can mummify it. You can embalm it. You can, you know, put it in glass, you know, have perfect air control, (laughs) whatever you want to do. You know, linen's tomb, you know, you can have people for years come by and take a look at you, whatever you want to do. But eventually, folks, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But when Jesus comes back, we're told that we'll have resurrected bodies, So notice with your body, there's a dissolution of the existing body, but a renewed, restored body that's miraculously given to you. Now, what I'd suggest you think of is the earth in the same way, a dissolution, but a renewal of all things. And the amazing thing is that the natural realm is going to be eternal for us. Not as you know it now. I mean, for example, I mean, just scientifically, the, the sun itself, you know, is not going to last forever, right? We know that it'll, it'll probably uh, shrink and then have a final expansion and, whoop, you know, it'll be gone. Eventually, the sun's going to burn up. So we, what are we going to do for light? Well, look in Revelation. Jesus Christ is the source of light, and he will be in the city, and we won't need the sun nor the moon anymore. So there's, there's an eternal... Uh, a blessing that's given to the new city that we're going to. Our bodies will be eternal, but there'll be connection with the old world. In other words, some people will say, will we recognize each other? Well, yes, I think we will. We're brothers, and we started our relationship here, and it's going to go on forever. And so we'll all be new, but we'll be recognizable. That seems to be what happened when Jesus showed up with his resurrected body here on the earth with the disciples. Peter didn't recognize him, but then he did recognize him. So it, it'll catch you for a moment. It's like I saw someone that came up to me just this past week. I hadn't seen him in 30 years. And he said, My name is Jeff so and so. I said, No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. Last time I saw you, you had hair out the ear. You were a young kid. Just look at you, you know, bald. You know, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I didn't even recognize him. Uh, but then when we started talking, and you know, I began, Oh, yeah, this is Jeff. This is Jeff, you know. So that's a negative example of a positive that's going to happen to us in heaven. We'll be so glorious, as Lewis, C.S. Lewis says, we'll be so glorious we would be tempted, if we were not sanctified, to bow down and worship each other. I mean, think about it. We're going to have bodies like Jesus, so we'll be glorious. Uh, but we'll recognize each other. It may take us a moment. But we'll recognize each other and to be able to connect our present with our past. It seems clearly that's going to happen. But in the natural realm, you're going to see things dissolve. Now, here... Let's just take a practical application of this right now. What do most men do? They, they, they plan their lives to gather as much as they can of this world's stuff before they pass. And on the scorecard, that's kind of how you score your success. And you know, if you if you're really successful, your obituary will not just be in the commercial appeal, but there might be something in the Nashville paper, maybe maybe Chicago, maybe New York. Boy, that'd be a sign of success, wasn't it? wouldn't it? If 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 when you die, the whole nation would have to be informed of it. Wouldn't that make you very important? We, we be- we measure ourselves by the number of people who will come to your funeral, <laughs> or. You know, and if you, if you live long enough, I mean, well, there just won't be too many of us left, you know. They're really they're there. It's amazing. Uh, but if you die, if you go ahead and die now, you might, you might get a pretty good crowd. But if that's, your, you know, if that's your measure of success, I suggest you go sooner rather than later because, you know, nobody's around anymore. But we have these funny ways of measuring how well we're doing in this life, and almost all of them have to do with things only in this life. And what Jesus is teaching us as an essential of the faith, you've got to move that measuring rod through eternity. You've got to see yourself as to whether you're successful in the long run. And there's only one thing that does that. Your faith in Jesus Christ waiting upon him for the resurrection of the last day. And then you will be mightily successful. So we end up wasting so much of our time and energy on collecting stuff in this life and trying to find pleasure in this life, as the commercial says, you only go around once. Well, you really don't just go around once, uh, you know. Or maybe you do go around once, but at the end is the most important part of going around. And so, when you pile all that stuff up, I mean, you know, there's there's no, you know, there's, there's no U-haul into heaven. You know, you can't take all that stuff with you. You really can't. You're going to die, just like I'm going to. And so, whether you gather all that stuff doesn't matter. A lot of times we gather a lot of stuff we want to hand it down to our children we not only have ruined ourselves now we corrupt them too you know with all that stuff teach them that that's the, the what we're looking for in life and uh, really all your stuff is going to end up in a big pile of ashes that's that's what second peter is saying. it's all going to end up in ashes so why are you spending all this time and energy and worrying so much about what you know, are you going to have a two-bedroom apartment, you know, when you when you retire, or a three-bedroom apartment? Are you going to have a lawn or not have a lawn? Are you going to have a Cadillac or an old beat-up Chevrolet? You know, and we spend all of our time worrying about what kind of condition uh, my life's going to be in. Am I going to be able to pay for this or not pay for that? And Jesus is saying, you you really have gotten the wrong focus. Those questions are important. We're supposed to be good managers and stewards of our resources, but there's something much more important, and it's what's coming in the next life. These things are going to dissolve. Do not let them be the ends of your life. Now, B, notice not only that it will bring the world to an end naturally, but also there'll be a, in the supernatural realm, there will be a massive destruction of all that is evil. In Colossians 2, you see that even by the cross work of Jesus Christ, he nails to the cross the principalities and powers and puts them up to public shame and spectacle, triumphing over them by the cross. That's what Paul says in Colossians 2. So Christ triumphs over the evil powers. And in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, you see that when Jesus Christ comes back, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name that at the very name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the principalities and powers that are under the earth, the evil principalities and powers will all confess that he's the Lord. That won't make them uh, believers, obviously, they'll confess it reluctantly. They won't love him. They'll just have to admit it that he is the Lord. They'll all be triumphed over. They'll all be thrown into the lake of fire, as Revelation calls it. In other words, they'll be assigned some place away from us. We'll be separated from those evil powers. Those evil powers now—they're just moving about, just like just like the air, just like just like birds, uh, just like oxygen. They can just go. Among us, wherever they will at this point. Well, that freedom they have is limited in time. That's the reason they're so angry. They know that's coming to an end. And there will be no more evil powers uh, among us. It's all going to be destroyed. So His coming will bring an end to that. And therefore, Christians who really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe in Him in His past work on the cross and the resurrection, We believe in Him in His present work, that He lives within us by His Spirit and empowers us to be conformed to His likeness. And we believe in Him in His future work, that He's taking us somewhere and that He's going to destroy this fallen, uh, sinful, and adulterous world in which we live. Uh, His coming will bring this world to an end. Now, look at verse 30, and we see here that His coming will be personal visible, and glorious. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. That's a text taken from Zechariah chapter 12, uh, speaking there in chapter 12 about the tribes of Israel. But here Jesus is saying all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And whom, uh, for whom shall they mourn? Well, they shall mourn for the one who, uh, who is pierced, we're told in Zechariah chapter 12. It seems clearly that that's the one who died for us on Calvary's cross. They'll mourn over their own sin. They'll mourn over their own uh, uh, animosity toward him. Uh, and the Son of Man is mentioned in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, and clearly it seems this is the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now that's a sign or a symbol used in Daniel 7 and other places of God, and particularly here the Messiah, coming with great majesty and power. He comes on the clouds of heaven. Now, is that literal or figurative? Well, some would say it's figurative, which could suggest maybe the 70 AD event. But when we look at the description of Christ coming back, we see some of this same language being used. For example, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and you'll find that. On page 2309, 2309, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, Now we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You see there what Paul is saying, that Christ will come on the clouds, as it were, which is to signify His great majesty. His power and might. He's over us. He's in the air. And you see that a loud trumpet sound, once again, used as a common symbol in the Old Testament of the great day of the king. That he comes among his troops. They win the battle. And when he comes, there's a trumpet sound. The the king is here. And all the troops go, oh, the king is here. Oh, we have mighty power now. We'll win this battle. And they're encouraged. And the same way, the same language is being used. Christ will come in majesty and power in the clouds. The trumpet sound will be given. That is, the war is to begin and uh, Christ and his people are going to win the battle. And then it shall begin and be concluded on the same day. And then notice that he says, we will be caught up with him in the clouds. And you notice this, we will not precede those who have gone before us. So, our mothers and fathers, our grandparents, those who, our brothers and sisters who've gone before us, some of us have here children who've gone before us. If they're in the Lord, and if Jesus Christ comes before we die, we ain't going first. They're going first. We'll we'll, we'll see them go up and be honored. And then we'll go next, right with them, to be gathered with the Lord in majesty and power. Now, notice three things about. Uh, this coming. First of all, it is personal. This is personal. This is not just an impersonal uh, triumph of the Lord where he doesn't know your name, you're, you're in a big crowd, and he just wants a crowd for his glory. No, this is very personal. He says in John 14 verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. <laughs> That's pretty personal language, he said. I'm coming back. Certainly, he's coming back to glorify himself among all the nations of the world to vindicate his own name, of course. But he says, "I'm coming back so that you will be with me and I will be with you." He said that to his disciples. We know how knuckleheaded these disciples were. So are we. But he loves us. So the second coming is a very personal coming. Uh, This is a personal relationship with us. You notice that he doesn't just send angels. He does send angels. We'll get to that in a moment. He has many assistants. He has many warriors. But he's coming himself. It's like if President Obama uh, wanted to start a little skirmish in in Afghanistan again, uh, he would just send the troops. He probably wouldn't send the Secretary of Defense he probably wouldn't even send uh, the, the the main commander of the forces uh, from the Pentagon. Uh, there would there would be some general on the field, but it wouldn't be the highest ranking officer uh, of a of our military. But in this case, the president himself <laughs> is coming. Uh, he's going to enter the battle. He himself is personally going to conclude the war. So it's. It's very, very personal. That ought to encourage us. He doesn't even just send Moses and Elijah. You know, he's coming himself. Secondly, it will be visible. And uh, this is made clear, of course, throughout the scriptures. But in 1 John 3, you get this statement from John. He says, Beloved, we are God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, For we shall see him as he is. We shall see him as he is. So the the great hope of the Christian church has always been, we're going to lay eyes on his majesty one of these days. You know, if you've uh, been to a rock concert and there's some famous band up there, or if you've been to an inauguration and you've seen the president, you want to get up close to the front. Where you can really see their faces. You want to, you know, because people are going to say, Did you see him? They want to know, Did you meet him? Well, here, it's going to be up close and personal. You are going to see him with your own eyes. It's very personal. There's going to be an encounter between you and all of God's people with him. And notice that since we see him as he is, we will become like him. Here's why you cannot see the majesty of God in your existing body and survive. You'd turn to toast. So you have to have a glorified body in order to be able to lay eyes upon him and survive it. You notice that Paul had just a momentary glimpse of the glory of Jesus in his post-ascension state, and he was struck blind for three days. Uh, You just can't take it, the majesty of God. But you're going to have a renewed body so that you will be able to gaze upon his glory and take it in and be massively encouraged and thrilled by it all. It will be visible, which means, number one, Christ is going to be vindicated. The Bible says all flesh shall see it together. Hitler will see it. Stalin will see it. Uh, The the worst uh, enemies of the Christian faith will see it. Everybody's going to see it. So Christ will be finally vindicated. There will be no scientific proofs that people will believe anymore against the glory of Jesus Christ. Because scientifically, if you use the good laws of induction and inference, the scientific method, there he is. All arguments are over. So he will be completely vindicated. All the foolishness will be completely eradicated. He'll be set before the entire world. But notice also, you're going to be vindicated. Because right now, Paul says, "Your life is cryptically hidden in Christ let me let me just give you, show you where this uh, is given to us in Colossians look at Colossians chapter three with me for just a moment in Colossians three verses one through four and this would be page twenty two ninety eight colossians three one through four uh paul says and this is sort of the beginning of of the of the resurrection lifestyle of the sanctified life. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So he, look, he's saying, uh, "You right now, you can't see him with your eyes. You're not qualified to. You don't have your new resurrection body. So you couldn't gaze upon him with your eyes. He would destroy you. So, Set your eyes on heaven by faith. Set your minds on heaven. That's what you do now in the pre-resurrected state. And he says, by contrast, don't set it on things on the earth. The more you're obsessed with material uh, gathering and avarice and seeking your pleasure in this life only, you've just taken your eyes off of heaven. Now, the reason you set your minds on heaven is... uh, because that is where Christ is in verse one. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So you want to set your eyes on Christ. That's what it means to set your eyes on Christ is to be heavenly minded. That's the reason we're heavenly minded because that's where Christ is. That's where our hope is. But let's keep reading in this text. He says, "For you, uh, you died. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God." Okay. Look at this. Christ died on the cross. We died with Him. We died to the things of this world. We died to sin. We were buried with Him in baptism. So now we are brought into the newness of life by His resurrection. And He has, re- he has been ascended to the right hand. So now our whole, our whole train of thought is toward where He is. We want to be with Him and we want to be like Him. So we've got our minds on Him. But Paul says... Right now, your life is, the word is cryptic. Uh, Your life is cryptically in Christ. Your life is hidden in Christ. So basically, you're incognito. I look at you, and you look just like the the unregenerate person down the street. I don't see any difference between you right now. That's because you're hidden. You're cryptically in Christ. So as far as this world knows, there's no difference between the two of you. Keep reading. Paul says, but when Christ, who is your life, appears. And the word appears means, uh, literally, when the lid comes off of Christ. Apocalypto. When, when the lid comes off and he's revealed. No longer concealed. Right now he's concealed. But when he's revealed, all flesh will see it together, then see what happens. Verse 4. Then you also will have the lid come off. You also will appear with him in glory. So you will be vindicated. And finally, everybody will see a prince. I had no idea. I was in the presence of royalty all that time. Well, we would have told you if you'd listened. Uh, But I didn't know. Yeah, you didn't know because you wouldn't listen. You wouldn't repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that he he makes us his brothers. Do you realize? Let me tell you, would the world please listen to me for a few moments? Do you realize that these people are brothers of Jesus? They're the royalty in the family, that they're going to be exalted just like Jesus was exalted? You better make friends with these people. That's what I say to the world. You better make friends with these people and you especially better make friends with their older brother. Because he's the king of the kings. We're just little kings, but he's the king of the kings. We as kings bow down before him as the king of the kings. Uh, But we're kings. We're princes in Israel. So that's what's happening. It's going to be personal and visible. Everybody's going to see it. Now, of course, this makes an enormous difference in the way that we live our lives. That's the reason that we don't fear death. We don't fear martyrdom. We don't fear poverty. We don't fear... uh, you know, all kinds of um, deficiencies that we may have to face in life. Man, we got a future. It changes everything. We know where we're going. And we're incognito right now, but that's going to change very soon. And uh, this will change the way that we react to all of our circumstances, especially to suffering. Okay, and then C, you'll notice that his coming uh, will be not only personal and visible, it will be glorious. And we have discussed this, but you see... Uh, Daniel 7, 13, 14, you can see the majesty of Christ. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, you know, that we eagerly await a Savior from there who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. He's going to be transforming us. Uh, And we've seen that in 1 Thessalonians. You can pick it up in 2 Thessalonians as well. Revelation 19, Jesus comes on his white horse in great majesty and power. So it's going to be just overwhelming. You've never experienced anything like it in your life. All you can do is just get a little foretaste of it uh, as you worship him. So that's the second coming, personal, visible, glorious. Now, lastly, look at verse 31. His coming will bring salvation to his people. Salvation. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. What does it mean to be gathered? He will gather us. What does it mean to be gathered? Well, if you look at Deuteronomy 30, verse 4, you may remember from our our study uh, a couple of years ago in Deuteronomy that in chapter 29... Uh, God, uh, Moses, tells the people, you know, if you disobey the word of God, you're going to come under his discipline, under his curse. And when you do that, he's going to vomit you out of this land you're getting ready to go into. You're going to make him sick, and he's going to throw you up. He's going to throw you up into exile. And Moses, as much as predicts it, he knows the people of God. He's been in the wilderness with them over 40 years. He knows what kind of people they are. So you're going to screw up, and you're going to come under the, the curse of God, and you're going to get thrown up out into exile. Now, when you do, if you'll turn to him, isn't this wonderful in the Bible? <laughs> the Bible predicts how scroungy we are. And when you get really, you, when you rascals are at your worst, and, and you will, let me tell you what you do. <laughs> I mean, we're always given second, third, fourth, 25th chances. When you do, all you do is turn to the Lord. Turn to Him. Repent and believe. You know how simple that is? There's not anything from which you cannot be rescued. Gentlemen, you cannot screw up so bad that you could never be rescued again. Grace is so great, you you cannot sin beyond the boundaries of God's willingness to forgive. But what some men forget is that in order to be restored by Him, it takes repentance, real deep-seated repentance, which means... Not only sorrow over your sin, but a turning from it unto the will of God and walking with Him. And seeking your have your brothers hold you accountable and come along with you. Being restored to the fellowship of believers. Restored to Christ. Walking in the newness of life. Then you'll screw up again. And what do you do? Repent and believe and come along. And the promises are throughout the Bible, but in Deuteronomy 30, he says, I will gather you. When you do that, I'll gather you from all the nations. Wherever I've spit you up, wherever you've been launched into exile, I'll get you back. He says, I'll gather you. It's a salvation word. Same thing for us. We're in this world. We've put our trust in Christ. He's going to come back and get us. He's going to save us. And ultimately, this is what salvation means. Usually we, th- we use the word salvation to mean have you been justified through faith or have you been born again? But dominantly in the Bible, salvation is being saved from the wrath of God at the end of the time. So this is what it means to be saved. This is what the second coming is all about. He's going to gather us unto himself. And notice, he's not only going to gather you, but he's going to gather all the family. He says to Israel, whatever nations you've been spit up into, I'll bring you back. And he did, of course, didn't he? He brought them back from Babylon. You know about Nehemiah uh, coming back, building the wall. You know about uh, the, the children of Israel returning to Jerusalem. And then, of course, how is he gathering us now? Same thing. It's Christ. Christ is the one who's bringing people from all the nations, Jew and Gentile, into one people of God. He's doing this. And when he comes back again, he'll gather us. So let me say... In some religions, uh, there are promises of nirvana and that, you know, your personality is just an illusion and when you so-called die in this life, your soul will just be absorbed into the great oneness of the universe and you'll find you really never had a personality at all. It was just an illusion. But there's a consolation given that, you know, don't worry about it when you die. Well, the Christian faith says, well, you should worry about it. Because one of the key things that God has given us is relationships. And we are personalities, and we're personalities that relate to each other. And if you want to be really miserable, go into solitary confinement for about three weeks and see what starts to happen to your brain. You start to go crazy without relationships. Here is what Jesus is teaching us. We are going to be gathered from the four winds. We, the family of God, are going to be restored. That godly grandmother who went ahead of you, you're going to see her again. Now, here's the good news. You're going to see your grandmother again. She's not going to whip you with those switches anymore because you're not going to be wicked and neither is she. I mean, the relationships are even going to be better than they were here. If they've gone on before us, you have some sort of nostalgic connection to them and you think, oh, I miss them. Yeah, and you're forgetting all the bad times you had with them. Well, when you get up there, no bad times at all. It's going to be much better than it ever was before. So you see what Jesus is offering is not some consolation of kind of losing yourself into oneness. He's talking about restoration to have something better than what we had here. We just to say, there's no thing that you are going to miss in this life. Are you poor here? You're not going to be poor there. Are you lonely here? You're not going to be lonely there. Are you suffering with cancer here? You're not going to suffer with cancer there. Are you are you longing for more material goods or more relationship or more sex or who knows what? You're going to have whatever you want. Now, the sex thing will come back to you later. But <laughs> you're going to have a sanctified mind and you're going to have whatever. Listen, I tell the first graders who asked me, are we going to be able to go fishing? I said, look, if you want to go fishing, you'll be able to go fishing. Of course, then I say to them, y- you know, you might not want to go out because your, your wants are going to change. You know, so you might not want to go fishing. Well, yours are going to change too. So I don't, know, I don't know what you're going to want, but whatever it is you want, you're going to have. So there will be no deficiencies in heaven. Do you see what Jesus is saying too? I'm going to gather you. I'm going to gather you with all the people. And he will gather us all be. He will gather us all. That is the righteous and the unrighteous. In Matthew, uh, uh, In Matthew earlier in chapter 13, we are taught that... He will gather the tares, the weeds, and burn them up. There'll be no excuses. There'll be nobody who can hide from His judgment. He's going to gather, in that sense, all the unrighteous and destroy them. Same sense, He's going to gather all the wheat, the poorest of us in the most remote jungles of the world, who are trusting in Jesus Christ. And those who are in the middle of the most civilized places in the world. He gathers all together. He won't miss a one, not a one. Now bring them all together before His throne. What a wonderful salvation that is. That's the reason this is of the essence of the Christian life. It's called the blessed hope. where are people who have hope in the future. That's the reason that Christians are to be joyful people. That's the reason that Christians go into their businesses and into their professions. People go into their community life and their civic life. And they, generally speaking, are much more hopeful And the reason is they have an eternal hope. They know that in the long run, things are going to work out well. And there's no reason why the God of great power who's going to transform everything in the end might not be willing to transform something in the temporal state right now. So we, generally speaking, uh, are a people who have an optimism and we have the power of hope in everything that we do because we have the blessed hope. Now let me just spend just a moment on the big question, so what? Let me just mention four things before we leave. First of all, we must be ready. We'll get into this more next time. Don't wait until you think you can pull your life together. Don't wait until you think it's a you know, the more opportune moment. Gentlemen, right now is the day of salvation, Paul says. Today is the day of salvation. It's the day of salvation for you. If you haven't put in your trust in Christ, today is the day. In God's providence, for some reason or another, You've heard about His coming today, and you have had due warning today. You've had due encouragement today. Be sure today you know that when He comes, He will gather you unto Himself for eternal life. Just simply put in your trust in Christ. Remember, today is the day for your friends as well. And when you have opportunity to share Christ or to encourage them to take the next step in exploring, to find out who Christ is and to pursue Him, encourage them to do that Today, I'll never forget how D.L. Moody was changed by the Chicago fire. There's some people he was going to talk to later about Christ and the Chicago fire came and wiped out so many of those people and he said never again will I wait a day to talk to somebody I have an opportunity to talk to. We must be ready. Secondly, we must be patient. He says, Paul says of the Thessalonians, one thing that marks them out as God's people is that they are waiting for a Savior. They're waiting. And you know how hard it is to teach a three-year-old not to eat dessert before dinner. And you know it's better for them. They have to learn to wait. It's called delayed gratification. And one of the keys to success in life is learning how to wait. Investments take time to grow. Education takes time before you're trained adequately to do some of the important tasks in this life. Waiting patiently is very important. And the people of hope are the people who will delay gratification because they believe in the future gratification. You have a future gratification that's coming that should enable you to wait patiently. Don't try to grab for all the gusto you can here. Wait patiently. Thirdly, we must be urgent. The day is coming. We shouldn't be wasting our time. We have to realize that we are ambassadors of Christ and Paul says we are ambassadors and we plead with you to be reconciled to God. So we have a pleading to make with the world around us. This is urgent business. If the building's on fire, we don't say, you know, you might think about you know, getting out of the heat someday. Get out of there! The, fire's on, the building's on fire. Now, I'm not saying you want to be a fanatical nut so that people think you've lost your mind. But there needs to be a steady urgency and a sense of intensity in your life about the agenda of God because it's coming to a conclusion and it's coming soon. Fourthly, we must be encouraged. Paul says, as we read just a moment ago in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, encourage one another with these things. Encourage each other. And so when you've got your trials, your afflictions, your grievances, When you're suffering, when you lose a spouse, and some of you here in this room have lost spouses before, you know what a devastating loss that can feel like? How are we encouraged with these words? They've been given to us. We do not grieve like those who have no hope. We grieve, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope. We grieve like those who do have hope, which means tears come down our cheek, but there's a joy in our heart that is irrepressible. Because we know we're going to see this person again if they're in Christ. And we know this is not the final statement. That there's going to be a grand day when Jesus Christ comes back visibly, personally for us, gloriously. And transforms us into his very likeness. Gentlemen, live for that day. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the rich and wondrous promises of the sacred scriptures. Thank you for, the, for sending your son who not only died for us and rose again but was exalted ahead of us so that we too might be exalted and who will come back and get us so that we may be where he is. Help us to live faithfully with that vision before us, to believe it, to live for it, to rejoice in it and patiently to wait. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.